to have Paul, the apostle, in the first century talking about this is really exciting to me. Because I like, I love I Bible study, I love theology, but I also love something we call apologetics, which is like defending the Christian faith, confirming, proving that it's true is the idea, giving reasons to believe. And to me, my favorite, my favorite reason to believe is prophecy. It really is my absolute favorite because it proves not only that there's a God who spoke, not only that that God's the God of the Bible, and that, and, and that Jesus is in fact the Savior and that the Old and New Testaments are inspired of him. I mean, this is like, it proves everything in, in like one go. It's just pretty exciting to me. Uh, prophecy is pretty amazing. It's genius. And it is the apologetic that God gives us in the scriptures. He goes, you want me to prove to you who I am? In Isaiah, he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen before it happens. So, I mean, this is like the biblically endorsed apologetic prophecy. All right, so please open your Bibles to Romans 15. And we're going to talk, um, really, the, the focus of this passage tonight is about unity. It's about the concept of Christian unity, but there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, so let me give you a quick overview of some of the things that will come up in this passage in Romans 15. Uh, we're going to go through verses 7 through 13. And it's going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, which is often ignored. And I mean a specific kind of power of the Holy Spirit. The phrase, the power of the Holy Spirit, is used in a very unique way in Romans 15, and people tend to ignore it. So there's your bait. That's at the end. So you have to, like, stay awake the whole time. Randy, that's for you. And, uh, and then... Um, uh, we're going to talk about how Paul quotes the Old Testament, and specifically in this passage, because sometimes you're reading through the New Testament and you'll hear like one of the apostles or someone quoting the Old Testament, and you're wondering, why that passage for this? And there's just some cool, neat stuff as we study these particular passages quoted in this particular order in Romans 15. And we'll also try to understand Jesus' ministry better, because I do think that there's a lot of believers out there who have a um, simplistic view of Jesus and his ministry, now, don't get me wrong, the gospel is simple, and I want to understand the simplicity of the gospel, but it's nice if I can go into a deeper understanding about those very simple gospel truths. You know, and there, you can go deeper into the simple things and get them better, and um, I think it's important in our modern culture and time to understand Jesus' ministry better, because there are some people who misapply how we should, how we should look at Jesus and apply that into our lives. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. That's, that's, your, that's your, little, your little bait. So let's get context. Let's read Romans 15. We'll read right through verse 1 through 7, and we'll kind of get our context to remind ourselves that this isn't just like a random passage out of nowhere. He's been talking about a particular difficult issue for Christians, and that's the issue of convictions. I'm not going to reteach that. I just want to get us the context. So let's read through it. Romans 15, starting in verse 1, it says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So the, the context is this, is um, teaching in Romans 13 about holy life, then in Romans 14 about convictions, and about a godly and biblical view about your own personal scruples and convictions as a Christian, and then 
at the end of Romans 14 all the way to 15 about how to interact with people who have different convictions with the main focus being unity. Unity, unity, unity. That, that being the overriding thrust uh, that should be on my mind. And then it's going to move from that into, again, the concept of unity. Now that unity has been brought up, he'll focus on that. Okay, so here we are, uh, verse 8, picking up in verse 8 with the reminder now fresh in our minds that um, this section on convictions, the overriding thrust is unity, unity, unity. Christians be focused on unity. I, I repeat this because even though you hear it, the question is, do you do it? Are you a doer of the word or hear only in the area of Christian unity? That's the thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that I don't pay enough attention to unity frequently. And maybe you're like me. Um, don't, don't divide over me on the issue, but it's a possibility uh, that we need to focus more on unity. Okay, so verse 8, let's pick up here. It says, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And now he'll quote several Old Testament passages. But before that, let me just acknowledge, like Paul has no problem just throwing out complicated truths. He'll just toss them out there. And some people would, would they'll, they'll tune out as soon as they hear someone teaching something that's kind of complicated. They're like, I'm out of here. Like, mm, that takes energy. I'm done. You know, like, I don't want to have to think about it. I, I can't tolerate not understanding it right away. Um, but as Christians, if we have that attitude, we will lose so much of the scripture. You basically take the Bible and you throw away 95% of it because you're only going to believe or understand what, what comes naturally and easily to you and never think about it. But um, obviously, the Sunday night group, this is, we, we, we aren't these people, right? We, we, if you're still here Sunday nights, you, it's because you want to know and you want to understand and you want to go deep. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take his phrases here and try to understand them more deeply. So he says, <clears throat> after this whole idea of Jesus serving us, so therefore we should serve each other, he then describes Jesus' servanthood. Specifically, theologically, Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. This is from what Jesus did to why he did it. He became a servant to the circumcision. That, that, that's, that's the what. That, that's here in the context of convictions. Jesus came with all of the law and all of the Jewish rules upon himself as in a way of serving others. And so that was right after saying, hey, if you have loose convictions, or I should say you have a strong faith and liberal convictions as a Christian, yet you may take on tighter convictions to serve others. And that's the teaching in Romans 15. Now we're applying it to Jesus. He did something very much like that when he came under the law. Now there's more to it than that, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, so he, he was a servant to the circumcision. So as Jesus served others, so we should seek to selflessly serve others who have different convictions than us by taking on their convictions. Not in every scenario of life, but at least in our interactions with them. Um, to, and it's limited and all that. We, I taught that stuff thoroughly over the past couple of weeks, so I won't get into it more. Um, but right now, we're, we're going to be changing attention. We're no longer talking about convictions. We're now going to focus on Jesus's mission and ministry. Now that that's been brought up, Paul's teaching us some deep stuff about it. And he says he was a servant to the circumcision. So here's where we're going to right now get deeper into understanding why Jesus came and what he did when he came. And um, I recently did a video online where I, t I dealt with... Um, uh, Bill Johnson and Bethel and some of their teachings about uh, Jesus, how we should try to copy his ministry. And that's one of the points that gets a little bit difficult is they're like, well, if Jesus healed everybody, shouldn't you heal everybody? Because we should only do what Jesus did. 
But there's a problem with that. See, that's a simplistic view of Jesus's ministry. Now, I, now don't get me wrong. We believe in healing, and I pray for healing, and, I, and I, I'm hopeful and expectant about it and all that. But, but if I'm to copy Jesus's ministry, well, then I'm going to become a servant to who? The circumcision. I'm going to come under the law, and I'm going to do what Jesus did and only go to the Jewish people. So you can't apply this, really, in, in the Christian life consistently. I'm just going to do whatever Jesus did. See, I want to, call, I want to copy Jesus' character, but I can't copy all of his missions and all of his actions. I want to preach the gospel. I want to teach about Christ. I want to live in holiness, but I'm not going to copy everything Jesus did. That's the too simplistic view of Christianity. And if you read through the gospels, and some people do this, they'll just read the gospels and whatever they read Jesus do that day, they'll like leave their house and go try to do that that day. And that's, I love that zeal, but it doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> because you don't have the same mission as Jesus. Like what, what happens when you get to the part where he gets crucified? You're going to go out and do that? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is obviously uh, a too simplistic of a view of Jesus. So, um, we want to understand Jesus' mission. And if, to, if we're going to understand his mission, we have to understand what it means that he went to the circumcision. In Matthew 15, 24, it says this. Um, Jesus speaking. It says, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is when he's being asked to help a Gentile. And he's like, no, I'm just sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, there's pleading there, and then he ends up still helping the Gentile. So we're not, it's not a heart issue, like he doesn't care about them. But he talks about his mission, doesn't he? I am sent to the house of Israel. So again, you can't copy this mission exactly, because it's not your mission. In fact, Jesus, one of his final things he said to the disciples was, go into all the world, which is exactly what he said he wasn't going to do. I'm coming to the house of Israel. Now, the job's done. I've died. I've resurrected. Here I am alive again. Now go into all the world, everybody. Now the gospel goes everywhere. So to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So if you understand this about Jesus's ministry, you realize you've got to look at more than the three years, three and a half years. You've got to look at the whole scope of scripture if you want to understand what your calling is in life. In John 1, 11, it says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own here are the Jews. Not just humans. It's the Jewish people. That's who he came to, his own. Came to his people. And they did not receive him. During, during his ministry on this earth, those three and a half years, Jesus never left Israel. Never stepped foot outside of Israel. Never tried to. Never expressed any desire to. Never made an effort to go out into the Gentile world, into the masses of people. But after his death and resurrection, he sends them all out there. He also obeys the law, the Old Testament law. That's a servant to the circumcision. He fulfills the law. He falls under all of the kosher laws, all of the, all of the laws that are actually biblically Old Testament laws. He follows, follows them to a T. And then it gives us two reasons. Paul's going to tell us two reasons why Jesus is a servant to the circumcision. So the first reason is, quote, for the truth of God in verse 8. He's a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. The second one will be to confirm the promises made to the fathers, or I should say that's really part of the first reason. Um, then verse 9 will have the second reason. So he's a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises. Th that is to prove that God is true. One of Jesus' purposes in coming was to fulfill those promises so that you would know that God is true. Think about this. Read the Old Testament. Now, you're, you're a Christian. You, you read the Old Testament through the lens of, of Jesus, right? And you see prophecy and you see fulfillments and you see pictures and you see typologies and all that. Now, imagine if Jesus never came. What are you supposed to do with the Old Testament now? Like, I've got a real problem. 
Because if I was a Jew living in 300 BC, I'm okay. I just, here's the Old Testament. I take it in and I'm, I'm going to follow it. And here's the temple and we're going to do all these things, right? But a Jew today has a serious problem because the Old Testament isn't just yet to be fulfilled. It is failed if Jesus isn't the Messiah. I have a friend who's Jewish and he was actually being raised up in a Jewish school when he was a boy. And they came across the passage where it talks about how he'll come on the cult full of a donkey in the Old Testament, you know, and and he went, and he was just a little kid, and and this is when he decided he was going to be an atheist, because he said, if this was going to happen, it should have happened a long time ago. Now, he didn't know about Jesus. He just knew reading the Old Testament and going through it in school, that this has obviously not happened yet. And I think that this is really an important thing to realize. As As a Jewish person today, if you believe in the Old Testament, and you should, if you believe in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, and you should, then you have to look at it and go, where's the fulfillment? Where's the confirmation of these promises made to the fathers? Let me, let me look at some of these things. Um, Abraham, there's a promise to Abraham, Genesis 22, 18. God says to Abraham, promise to the father, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In his seed, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, we get that. Uh, to David, God spoke to David in 2 Samuel. Let me read a couple of the verses in his covenant with David, one of the fathers. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then he goes on and talks about how he'll handle David's descendants. And then in verse 16, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And it was well known that their Messiah would be the son of David. He would be stepping into this Davidic kingdom. And even now, the Jewish expectation is for a Messiah that will do some of the things that are in the Old Testament. In fact, it seems to me from, from what I've studied, trying to learn what, what modern Jewish, Jewish people think the Messiah will look like, because they think he hasn't come yet. They describe the second coming and they ignore the first coming. They, well, they have elements of the first coming. So they'll talk about how they know this messianic expectation, this, this Messiah, he's, he's going to come and it's going to cause the world to be united under his leadership. Jew and Gentile will be brought together under this Messiah. So they'll teach that. There'll be like worldwide prosperity and Israel will be like the central nation of the planet at that point in time and, and all these things. And you're like, yeah, man, that's, that's all going to happen. The problem is they're ignoring all the stuff that already has happened. Many of those things which had a time stamp on them, like in Daniel 9. Messiah was supposed to come before the destruction of that next temple. Daniel 9 talks about, what, right, the temple's been destroyed. They talk about the temple being rebuilt. And then before that temple's destroyed, the Messiah shows up. Well, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Based upon the Hebrew Bible, the, the Jewish texts, the Messiah has to have come before 70 AD. And he did. Right? Jesus did to confirm the promises. But it, the point here I'm making is this. Like if, you're a, if you're a Jew and you don't believe in Messiah, then you believe the Messiah never came. And believe it or not, there are many Jews who do believe this. There's lots of different branches within Judaism, but there were plenty of rabbis after the destruction of the temple, who said, yes, the time came, the Messiah was supposed to be here, but we were rebellious, so he didn't come. And they actually teach that the Messiah didn't come because of their rebellion. Yet God did not say anything about whether or not they had to be obedient for him to show up. He just said, this is what I'll do, this is when it'll happen. So really interesting stuff. So if, the, uh, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then it's not an issue of when will Messiah come, it's just too late. The promises aren't confirmed. God lied. Or that wasn't God. Those are the options. 
had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to die by crucifixion in Psalm 22. Isaiah 52 and 53 talk about how he was going to be a suffering servant who would bear the sins of others successfully, delivering those people. Um, Daniel 9, again, talks about his destruction, uh, his, his coming before the destruction of the temple. And all this stuff is fulfilled in Christ. So, to have Paul, the apostle, in the first century, talking about this is really exciting to me. Because I like, I love I Bible study, I love theology, but I also love something we call apologetics, which is like defending the Christian faith. Confirming, proving that it's true is the idea. Giving reasons to believe. And to me, my favorite, my favorite reason to believe is prophecy. It really is my absolute favorite. Because it proves not only that there's a God who spoke, not only that that God's the God of the Bible, and that, and, and that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior, and that the Old New Testaments are inspired of him. I mean, this is like, it proves everything in, in like one go. It's just pretty exciting to me. Uh, prophecy is pretty amazing. It's genius. And it is the apologetic that God gives us in the scriptures. He goes, you want me to prove to you who I am? In Isaiah, he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen before it happens. So, I mean, this is like the biblically endorsed apologetic prophecy. It not only proves the Bible, but points directly to Jesus. The Old Testament comes and there's like 400 plus years between the Old Testament and Jesus. We establish that, that big time gap between the Old Testament and Jesus. So we know, and, and nobody thinks that any of these Old Testament passages were written after Jesus. And Jesus, a very historically confirmed figure. So here we have text for sure written before he came. Him coming, historically, the most reasonable thing is to believe he really did come and do these things. And then we have that right there as a, a great thing. So I, I do encourage you guys to uh, familiarize yourselves with at least a couple prophecies where you even have notes in your Bible or notes in your phone that you could bring out and you could show it to somebody. You know, I, I don't recommend Daniel 9 for this because Daniel 9 is vastly complicated. It's a very complex prophecy and trying to get someone to track with you and understand it all the way through is difficult. Um, so I'd recommend Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 um, or something along those lines because I think that they're easier to walk someone through. They don't need great historical knowledge to understand Psalm 22. <laughs> you could just show them the verses in plain English or Hebrew if you're able to do that <laughs> and they can get it. So uh, I do recommend that. Familiarize yourself with at least one prophecy that you could pull out and you could share it with someone casually on a bus or at a, at a moment's notice. Just one prophecy. I got this one in my pocket. I'm ready to share it, you know. So that was one reason. Um, to confirm the truth, uh, God's promises to the fathers. But also it gives us a context of the law um, by Jesus fulfilling the law. Like, this is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. To fulfill. And, and throughout, especially in Matthew's gospel, we keep reading about Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled. He fulfilled. He fulfilled as he's going through his life. So some of the things he did was he morally fulfilled the law. He ceremonially fulfilled the law so that the law became like, like that connect the dots paper. Do you guys use connect the dots when you were kids? Remember the, the song, connect the dots, la, la, la. Well, I'm, I'm older than you, so. Maybe I did make it up. I do make up songs. So you'd have the dots, you know, on your paper, and you connect them, and you're like, oh, it's a unicorn, or something like that. You know, as you connect the dots, go through number to number. It's as though all of the 613 commands of the Old Testament law, you connect them together, and it's a picture of Jesus. That's the idea. He comes and he fulfills it, so that the law becomes a, um, a tutor, the Bible says in Galatians, a tutor to lead us to Christ. 
It's there to guide you along the way to say, see, I'm teaching you step by step. I'm unpacking truth for you so that you'll go, oh, and you'll have that light bulb moment when you realize that Jesus is what it's all about. It says this in Colossians about this concept. It says, let no one judge you in food or, or in drink or regarding festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. It's so interesting because it describes these Old Testament things as being a shadow of what's to come. And then Jesus is the substance. So let me give you another analogy that comes straight out of the pages of Scripture. That was Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. This is, this is exciting to me. Imagine if you have Jesus planting his feet in the Gospels, and there he is standing. And then back behind him, you have the Old Testament. You have the Hebrew Bible. And in front of him, you have the light of Revelation, you know, like the, the second coming. And, it's, and the light's cast upon him, and back from him, from where he's standing there in the Gospels, is his shadow being cast down. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as if you could kind of look at the shape and shadow, and when you finally get to the Gospels, you go, that was the shadow I was looking at that whole time. That's the picture that, that the scripture gives us. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He is the substance. They are the shadow. So it's not an insult to call them the shadow. Because of the shadow of Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good shadow as far as shadows go. You know, that's, that's a great shadow. They were there to tell us, see, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then finally, he's here. So to confirm the promises, <clears throat> as it says there, um, a servant of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the Father. So we have that context. Um, so again, let me remind you, this is why we don't copy Jesus' ministry. We copy his character. We copy his love. We copy his holiness. We copy his goodness. But I don't have his ministry. Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't even have Jesus' ministry during the three and a half years. His ministry has changed. It is finished, he said, right? So I don't copy those three and a half years. I say this because it, I know this doesn't affect you guys too much, but there are plenty of people out there who are being influenced by those groups that will take something Jesus did, pull it out of context, and then try to create kind of a frenzied expectation in the church because Jesus did it and therefore you have to do it and it just gets a little weird. Um, so that doesn't mean we don't copy anything Jesus did. It just means you don't look at it so simplistically. Be a little more thoughtful about it. So in uh, the second point, he says here, um, a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And then verse 9, the second point, second reason for Jesus' coming as a servant to the circumcision. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to now say as it is written. He's going to make a case for this second point. The second point is Jesus came on the Jewish side. He came to fulfill the law to serve the circumcision, to be a blessing to them. And then the, the, maybe the really, I don't know, very patriotic Jew might say, yeah, that's our Messiah. That's our Yeshua. But point two is, and on the other side, for the Gentiles, that was all to pave the way that they might also be able to come in. So we have Jew and Gentile coming together. And what's the focus of the passage? Unity. So you see the, hopefully the theme of the passage coming out there. So um, sometimes Romans is interesting because we'll get, sometimes these, these statements, I mean, after the universal condemnation of the first few chapters, we get, we get these statements where it's like he's appealing to Jewish people to accept Gentiles. And there's other times where he's like appealing to Gentiles to accept the Jews. 
Have you noticed that? It's like he's shifting subjects. And here, um, now he's, he's asking uh, for, I think, the Jewish people to recognize that this Gentile stuff was always predicted. It was part of an Old Testament reality. It's not a new thing at all. So let's look at um, these verses that he quotes, and we'll try to understand them in context. So the first one is this, <clears throat> Romans fifteen nine. He says, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is like a messianic type passage. It's, it's in two places in your Old Testament, 2 Samuel twenty two fifty, 50, and also Psalm 18. In 2 Samuel 22, 50, he says, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praise to your name. In uh, Psalm 18, verse 49, same thing. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. It's the same song recorded two times in the Bible. But I want to look at it in context, because that's what you miss when you're reading Romans 15, is the context. And sometimes Paul makes the mistake of thinking that you might actually know the Old Testament passage. Uh, I'm just playing. (laughs) But it's always good to go and look it up. So Psalm 18, verse 43, it says this. And you have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations, plural. Nations, plural. Not just the Jews. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Connecting this psalm to David, yes, but to that promise about this forever kingdom that David will have. So if this applies to David, does it not that much more apply to the Messiah, the son of David, who inherits the promises to David? Yes. So that's, that's how you would appeal this to like a, perhaps a Jewish person, is to remind them of the fact that the Messiah is the son of David. And the Psalm 18 is speaking about not just David, but his descendants, and that connects it to that promise. So there's two classes of people, according to Psalm 18, and it's not Jew and Gentile. The two classes of people are those who submit to this Messiah, and those who don't. Those whom God destroys, right? They're, they're judged. And then the others who bow their knee to him. And then the Gentiles are rejoicing with his people. They're joy- rejoicing together. So, so Jew and Gentile together is an Old Testament promise. If the Messiah is going to fulfill the Old Testament, then Jews and Gentiles at some point have to come together. I like that. <clears throat> and I'm just thinking... If God can mend the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, maybe, just maybe, he can mend the barrier between you and that mean old lady, you know, that you know, or <laughs> you and that, that young guy who you think is kind of brash and sort of a jerk. You know? <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, maybe I'm not that young. It's all right. <laughs> On the internet, they seem to think I'm a lot younger than I am. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm really 63. Okay, so let's look at another verse. Okay, that was Psalm 18. Now, the second verse he quotes is is here in verse 10 of Romans 15. It says, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And this is actually a really neat passage to read in context because it's really, okay, here's Moses. He's coming to the end of his days and he looks out at the Israelites and he's like, I got some message. I got a message for you about your future. 
So it's a prophetic passage from Moses about the future of the Israeli people. And he tells them um, in Deuteronomy 31, I'll back up a little bit because it's all part of the same passage. So Deuteronomy 31, verse 19 through 21, he says, Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. So it's Moses, he's the one delivering it, but the song here is spoken in in the name of God. God's the one who's speaking. It's his covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I've brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. So the prediction is, Israel, you're going to be brought into the land, you're going to backslide, you're going to fail. And my thought is this, is if God had picked a different group of people to be his people, they would do the same thing. Because people are people are people are people. And anybody he chose and threw into that role of being the Jewish people or the chosen people, they all would have done the same thing. I would have, you would have. Um, it's just inevitable. Um, and so that's why they're such a great representation of humanity. They're the same as the rest of us. So if you're frustrated with them, just look in the mirror and thank God for his mercy. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. Now we get moving forward into Deuteronomy 32. And he says, In verse 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. And so the the prediction is this, right? Israel, you're going to go into the land. You're going to backslide. Things are going to happen. And at some point, God is going to be reaching out to non-Jewish people and he's going to draw them in. Right? Because you're, you're, you're leaving God for other gods. Well, God will embrace other people who are not Jewish. Then, as you read on in Deuteron- Deuteronomy 32, when you say Deuteronomy more than four or five times, it just starts to turn into like gibberish in your brain, right? Um, anyways, so then you get to uh, Deuteronomy 43, right? They backslide. God reaches out and embraces Gentile people. And then Israel repents. They get restored as part of the prediction, and then Deuteronomy 32, 43, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Because the end of the story is this, right? Gentiles and Jews brought together to the true God of Israel, worshiping him and knowing him. And this is Old Testament. This is not some new thing that came in the New Testament. It was fulfilled in the New, but it was predicted in the Old. And so it's all part of the story. All part of the story. It's a picture of Jew and Gentile together after a time of judgment and despair and hardship for Israel. And I think it's awesome. So do you see the case that Paul is building? I love reading Romans as though you were a Jewish person who knew the Old Testament, but was just being exposed to these New Testament truths for the first time. And it's kind of like you read Romans differently if you read it from that perspective. Verse 11 in Romans 15, he gives another verse. It says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And to laud is like to lift up or exalt. You know, we're worshiping him. Praise the Lord. Now, this is actually the shortest psalm in the Bible. It's it's only two verses long. Psalm 117. Good luck finding it, right, as you flip through the pages. Psalm 119, that's easy. (laughs) Psalm 117, not as as easy. But Psalm 117, I'll just read to you this really short psalm and get get the message of it. This is a predictive psalm, or it's not so much predictive in like, one day this is going to happen in the future, as much as it's saying, this is a glorious thing. 
And what's the glorious thing? Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, different people groups, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The mercy of God is not just meant for Jews, it's meant for all people. It's not just meant for your family, it's meant for all families. It's not just meant for your cluster and your building or your group, it's meant for all people. And God is giving us reason to rejoice at the incredible love and goodness of his mercy extended to all of humanity, all of humanity predicted when? Thousands of years ago. So everyone's worshiping God, all people. This reminds me of the throne room scene in Revelation 5, where they say, and they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, every tribe and tongue and people, and nation. There was always intended to be a universal appeal of salvation and God bringing people in from every corner of the earth. That was always the intention. Always the intention from the Old Testament on. Did you know that there's actually a lot of uh, Jewish people today who are, they're convinced that the God of Israel is the true God, but they're very opposed to telling other people about him. They're anti-outreach. And they look down on outreach. Outreach makes them want to spit on the ground. I mean, it's like offensive to them. The idea of telling other people about your beliefs. And they say things like, just let the Jews be Jews and let the Christians be the Christians. And we don't, we don't, that's why it's really difficult to get a Jewish person like this to, into a debate over Jesus. Can we have a debate? Is he really the Messiah? Can we just look at the Old Testament passages, apply them, see if it's really true? It's difficult to get into, get him into that debate because they don't care about convincing you. They're like, just leave us alone. <laughs> and I'm just like, the Old Testament seems to care about the Gentiles. <laughs> I think that you should too. If you're a Jewish person thinking that, like, oh, I don't have any reason to have any heart for them knowing the God of Israel. But that's exactly what the Old Testament has, is this Jew and Gentile coming together, us knowing each other uh, and knowing him. So from Genesis all the way through, God is the God of all people. In fact, Genesis 1, the creation account, one of the major emphasis in Genesis 1 is that God made and there are no other gods. Like God alone made the heavens and the earth. That's it, right? One God and he made all the people, one God. It's not like a lot of the creation accounts in other like pagan religions where they have a creation account where this God, like basically two gods fight, one gets stabbed, his guts spill out and then all of a sudden an island is created. And that's, guess what? That's where we live. That's our island, you know? And then the God, like he like spits in the dirt and, does something weird or, you know, whatever the story is, right? Does something to create, but, but the God only created our group of people, our little ethnic group. The rest of the people, they have their gods that made them. Then along come the Jewish people with their Bible and they're like, yeah, we're here saying there's only one God and he made everybody. And do you see why even modern uh, or ancient Romans, they, they would call Christians atheists, Obviously, the word meant something different then. I mean, it wasn't even English they were speaking. They were speaking uh, Greek. So. But because they only believed in one God, so they denied so many gods. Modern atheists take this and try to use it to prove that we're all atheists, which ends up undermining them in about eight different ways. <laughs> it's totally philosophically bankrupt. But it's very interesting to at least see the perspective that the pagans had upon the idea of this one God who made all people of one blood, like Paul said. Of one blood, he has made us all. And um, anyway... I think it's awesome. So <clears throat> Romans 3 has said this earlier, Romans 3.27, it says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. 
That's the point. Like he's the he's he is the he's your God, whether you like it or not. The question is, do you submit to him uh, or not? So he chose the Jews for a purpose for the sal- but the purpose was for the salvation of all mankind, and that's what Paul's kind of driving things at. Now you see Jesus's ministry. I can't copy this ministry. I can copy him, but I can't I can't do what he did in his ministry. Um, that was that was something very unique and very special. All right, let's let's keep reading because there's one more verse that we're going to quote. And it's here in um, verse 12 of Romans 15. It says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he who, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, all the Gentiles shall hope. This is from Isaiah chapter 11, that there's going to be a root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father, King David's father. So we're looking at the line of David and there's going to be a root or a shoot out of Jesse. You know, some, some trees they'll propagate themselves by sending roots down into the ground. They'll travel 10, 30 feet sometimes really far away and they'll have a shoot that comes up. And so this is like the root or the shoot of Jesse. I believe that this is what this is referring to. So we have an interesting story, Isaiah 10. It shows that God is using Gentile nations like woodsmen with axes and they're chopping down Israel. Isaiah 11 says, ah, so there'll be a stump. Israel will just be a stump, but there'll be a a shoot that comes out. And he is who? He's the Messiah. And all the Gentiles will hope in him. So it's just, again, it's like that Deuteronomy 32 passage. This, this like pain and suffering in Israel for a time, God using all this to reach out to the Gentile people as well, that they might all come together under the one Messiah, worshiping the true God of Israel. Pretty cool stuff. So let me read to you uh, Isaiah 11.1. It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Um, that word branch, it's, it's, it's similar to the word Netzer or Nazarene. That might be why uh, the gospels say that he shall be a Nazarene, referring to him being the branch, not being from Nazareth um, or Nazarite. Excuse me. He shall be Nazarite. Nazarene? Nazarene. Nazarene. Somebody tell me what's the right one. I forget. Off the top of my head here. Um, So Isaiah 11 verses 9 and 10 say this. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as far as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a banner to the peoples for the Gentiles shall seek him. And his resting place shall be glorious. So the Gentiles aren't just submitting to him. They're seeking him. Like they're like I want him. I want him. And this is ultimately Jesus. Now what's interesting is Isaiah 11 it talks about the destruction of Israel, but not complete and total destruction, but they're being hacked down. But then there's this later time of great prosperity. In Isaiah 11, we would say that's millennial. It's about like the, the, the predators and the prey lying down and, and, and enjoying each other's company and the child plays with a snake and it isn't getting bit. This is like a millennial, you know, the, the thousand-year reign of Jesus seems to be what's in view here. And the thousand-year reign has Jew and Gentile together coming under this Messiah. So... That's Old Testament stuff, man. This is Jewish, Jewish eschatology. It has a Jews and Gentiles serving God under the rule of Messiah. And here's Christians going, yeah, come on, Jewish friends. We love you. We love your Messiah. And they're like, let us be us and you be you. And we're like, no, <laughs> no, that's not what your scriptures say. Your scriptures say we're all to come underneath this one. So it either happened in Jesus or it failed. I mean, this is, these are the options. Either Jesus is the Messiah or there isn't one. Like there's no real other choice. All right, let's look at verse 13 because now he, he concludes this, this section. 
with this phrase in Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God here is called the God of hope. This, there's actually several times in Romans 15 where God's called the God of something. So Romans 15, 5, he's called the God of patience and comfort. Romans 15, 13, he's called the God of hope. Romans 15, 33, later on, he's called the God of peace. This is interesting. At its core, the concept of hope, I think, is about a better future. That's what hope is about. It's not hope like wishful thinking. Um, biblically, in this sense, hope, you know, like you're thinking, hey, uh, we're going to go to Disneyland later. I hope so. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's more like, I know this will happen, and I have hope because of it. So hope is about a sure confidence about some future reality. That's, that's what hope is about in scripture, especially in the New Testament. So he's the God of hope. At its core, hope is about the future. Why does he mention this? Because I think that he causes us to look back at Old Testament prophecy, showing that the Gentiles would be gathered under Messiah. But then his last verse he quotes is about the millennium. It's about this future time of glory and goodness and the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. And he goes, now, may the God of hope. Like, as much as a Jew would look forward to the Messiah, you ought to be looking forward to his return. This is going to give you hope. But we can sometimes live our lives and go about them in such a pattern and it's surrounded by a world that doesn't even talk about this stuff, right? That it's not really a present reality to our hearts. You know, we're more like, oh man, taxes, you know, or I, I have needs of the day. Issues are coming up. You know, my so-and-so is my loved one and, and they're entering their twilight years and I, I, it's coming and I see it and, I, and this is worrying me and I'm concerning me. And so we sometimes don't look a little beyond that moment to see the hope that we have in our future. This gives me hope. The fact that Jesus did come and did fulfill all those prophecies, isn't that sort of a promise in and of itself to you? That if he did what he said he would do, then he'll do what he said he will do. So we're told, may the God of hope fill you with two things, joy and peace. I like that Christian joy isn't, isn't like a frantic, like spazzy joy. You know, like joy that's like fake. Joy that's based upon just being excited in the moment, like your team won the Super Bowl joy. Like that's, that's great, but like I need something that lasts longer. And I need joy and peace. So this joy comes with a peace. It's not fake. It's not feigned. It's like just this undergirding joy of the Lord, my great hope that's in the future, giving me peace in my life today. So here's a question I have, kind of like winding things down here. How do I have more joy and peace? I think the answer is in verse 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. Now, sometimes as Christians, like we want joy and peace to fix the fact that we're not believing. Especially being a younger believer and having more emotional roller coasters. I don't go on nearly as many emotional roller coasters as I did when I was like in my 20s or teens, you know, a couple years ago. <laughs> but, but I wanted God to give me joy and peace to fix the fact that I was doubting him. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever been there. I certainly have been there. 
But here, it seems that it's the other way around. It's like, no, no, if you want joy and peace, you're going to find it in believing, in trusting him. That's where the joy and the peace will be. You can't fix your lack of joy and your lack of peace apart from this idea of trusting in him. I'm, I'm, I'm not having joy, Lord. I don't have any peace. Well, where's your trust and your faith? Obviously, these are already Christians. They believe in Jesus for salvation. This is not just a salvation issue. This is just a simply, Lord, how much am I really entrusting you about all these issues going on in the future itself? Jesus put it this way. He said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, which I think is an incredible formula. Your heart's troubled. He goes, don't do that. Instead, believe in me. Trust me. Trust me. When you're thinking about the worst case scenarios of life, can you just go, Lord, I still trust you, even if that happens. And all of a sudden, you have joy and peace. Because it comes in believing. Now, it's true whether you believe it or not. The glorious future is coming whether you believe it or not. But sometimes we're like, I mean, like, you, you guys have seen videos of people on roller coasters. There's two different kinds of people on the roller coaster, Right? There's the one who believes that they'll be okay at the end, and there's the one who's not so sure. Which Christian are you? <laughs> That's the question. Which face do I have in the roller coasters of life based upon what I believe will happen on this thing, and how bad can it, can it be? Um, what's the destination, you know? So finally, he concludes that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, abounding is like overflowing it's like you're it's gushing out of you hope is just gushing out of you that's that's exciting to me just letting i love this as a christian when you can be in that place where you're just trusting the lord and you just let it bleh. like just i'm just going to be a believer who trusts the lord and who has my hope in the lord and just let it overflow out of my life and that's a beautiful thing um but it's by the power of the holy spirit which is something no one ever talks about the bible mentions the power of the holy spirit several times right in acts 4:31 it's the power of the Holy Spirit for boldness so that they would preach the gospel with boldness and they pray and God gives them power. In 1 Timothy 1.7, it's the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill a calling and ministry. Timothy is being told about the power of the Holy Spirit to, for him to go out there and he might be a little worried or a little nervous about his leadership role in the church or those he might face have to stand against and he's told to have courage and get out there in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts 10.38, it's power for miraculous healings and exorcisms. So the Holy Spirit does have power for us for those things. Power for miraculous healings and exorcisms. In Romans 15.19, which we'll get to soon enough, it's power for signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. But here, here, it's power for abounding hope. That is an interesting way to view the power of the Holy Spirit power of the Holy Spirit for just having overflowing hope in my life. It, not apart from believing, you got to trust the Lord in these things. You're not going to have hope while you're doubting him. Um, doubt is the path to fear. and That's the path to the dark side. So that was a really good Yoda impersonation though, wasn't it? Mm. No, no. I didn't really think about that ahead of time. I think I just lapsed into like an old British guy. So Psalm 51.12, I think, gives us a great picture of the power of the Holy Spirit giving us abounding hope. And it says, Psalm 51.12, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. This is not just the New Testament reality. It's the fact that God's spirit comes alongside me as I'm trusting in him to, 
empower me with hope. I feel like maybe we need more of that. Abounding hope. Hope that eclipses what you're currently going through. Hope that, that, that says, ah, sufferings this present time aren't worthy to be compared, you know. It's the joy of God's salvation. It's not the joy that life will work out. It's not the joy of health and well-being. It's not the joy that things are going well in my life right now. It's, it's joy even if everything is the exact opposite of that. That's the abounding hope we have in Christ. That's the abounding hope. So I, I just want to pray um, as we close in prayer and echo this prayer. That we would abound in hope. And we take a posture of saying, Lord, I choose to trust you. Because belief is a decision I make. I choose to trust you. And um, seek for more hope and joy and peace. Because that's even better than in and out, man. A little bit. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we we ask, Lord, for, for more joy and more hope and more peace. Abounding in our lives. And our part is this, Lord. We declare we trust you. We trust in your character. We trust in your goodness. We trust in the prophecies and the promises of God about the glorious future you have for us who believe. And no matter what's going on currently in our lives or in the lives of those around us, Lord, we pray not that we could just ignore it, but rather we would see that there's a glorious light ahead that that outshines anything else that's going on. We pray, Father, for abounding hope in Jesus' name. Amen.